And then even um, more in terms of dietary preferences and feeding patterns, drawing on what we know from other species, we'll see that animals develop preferences for feeds that others are eating um, and even learning where to go and what to eat. So that social environment is really critical. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like With early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg & Schmidt, Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. So welcome everybody to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gil Carpenter. I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist for Iowa State University. And today I'm joined by Emily Miller Cushion from the University of Florida, um, Associate Professor recently promoted. Well, no, not so recently anymore. It's been a couple years, I guess, 2021. Uh, Emily is, uh, did a bachelor, a BSc at the University of Waterloo in Physics, and then her PhD in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. Uh, there, her research program focused on the development of feeding behavior in dairy calves. And as a faculty in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Florida, she has continued a lot of that um, research along those lines, looking at behavior and welfare in dairy calves. I'm really curious, though, Emily, I, I've known you before. I, you know, professionally, like, read a lot of your papers and interested in your work. I did not know that your bachelor's was in physics. So... Why? <laughs> uh, and and like what uh, what brought you into the into the dairy industry? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, and that's always a question I get. I, you know, I was I was a student, and I guess going back to high school, I always was interested in animals. I grew up with animals. I grew up riding horses, actually, and I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do. I did apply, actually, thinking I might go the pre vet route at the University of Guelph. And then I just got interested in too many things and couldn't decide what to do. So I, at the last minute, decided I was going to go do something different. And, you know, I enjoyed my undergrad degree in physics. Um, along the way, I tried to pivot a little bit and look at biophysics specifically. And I, I think I knew most of the way through that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing, but it was interesting and I stuck it out. Um, but during my undergrad I had a couple summers worth of undergrad research experience actually at the uh, the Kempfel campus of the University of Guelph, the, the sort of research satellite campus. 
that was there at the time, which is close to where I grew up. So I was able to kind of get that undergrad research experience and realize that there is this whole field of science that draws on, you know, animals and what we know about animals and can learn about animals. And I realized how much fun research can be. You get these questions, you're curious about something, and then you get a playground to try to answer them as long as you're willing to, you know, wake up early and work hard. And yeah, I really enjoyed that. So I finished my undergrad degree. Uh, but then when I went into grad school, I moved to the University of Guelph and yeah, animal behavior and welfare. And now you're at the University of Florida, you're doing a lot of the same stuff. Uh, a lot of your research focuses on uh, how calves learn behavior from what I from that's at least my take home from some of your stuff that I've read. Do you want to talk a little bit about your current research program and kind of some of the overarching objectives that you have? Yeah, so I've, I've focused on trying to look at calf behavioral development, um, how it relates to aspects of their management, things like housing and feeding. And I think I'm sort of I, I think of it as sort of two broad areas. One is what are calves behavioral needs and how can we accommodate them? How do, you know, the ways that we manage them influence that development and what kind of longer term implications does that have? And then also what can we learn about calves by understanding their behavior? So sort of from the other side of it, um, we see changes in behavior that can be reflective of aspects of welfare, health, disease, and even positive aspects of welfare. And so I'm interested also in the you know, insights into how an animal is doing when we understand their behavior. I think that's kind of a kind of a, you know, an open space where not a whole lot of research has been done. We've always kind of thought of calves as, um, you know, we like, and I'm a nutritionist by training. So you think of them as just like a developing rumen or, uh, you know, you kind of think of them as like a physiological, um, you know, uh, unit and, and understanding the biology and less about how that behavior can influence that management. And I think that that's kind of a, like a big open area of study where not a whole lot of people have really dabbled into that now we now we're seeing more. You're not the only one. Now we're seeing more people kind of start getting into that space a little bit. And I think so much of the stuff that's coming out is really interesting. We were just talking, uh, you and I, before we started recording. Um, I just finished up a calf study um, with some beef on dairy calves. It was a nutrition project. Um, and it was really so I was talking to my grad student about this because we we noticed we didn't see a whole lot of at least not yet. Still kind of looking at the data. Haven't really seen as much as we thought we would see in terms of grain intake on the nutrition treatment side. But we'd noticed that there'd be like pockets of calves as you were as you were feeding individual grain every day and weighing out what each calf needed. I'd noticed that there were like these pockets of like four calves in a group with each other that would all eat a bunch of grain. And then we'd have a bunch that and that wouldn't eat a whole lot. And I mean, traditionally we'd think of microenvironments, but Taylor and I were talking, we were like, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's a, maybe they're learning from each other. You know, is that something that that we've kind of been underestimating to this point that that calves kind of pick up behaviors from those social cues from each other and learn how to how to do some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do see that calves raised in social groups, even just calves raised in pairs, will eat more solid feed, which is particularly important when we have calves that provided more milk and we need to encourage them to start eating solid feed. And that's always kind of a concern when we're looking at higher planes of milk nutrition. But yeah, yeah, they learn from each other and they'll start eating more. They they go to the feeder more often. They eat more food. We've even seen that some of those more frequent meals persist after weaning when they're when they're all group housed, that previous social experience is important. Um, and then even 
um, more in terms of dietary preferences and feeding patterns, drawing on what we know from other species, we'll see that animals develop preferences for feeds that others are eating um, and even learning where to go and what to eat. So that social environment is really critical. Um, we looked at um, some, some recent work we were looking at uh, Previous effects, primarily we were interested in how previous diet and previous provision of hay during the pre-weaning period affected feeding patterns after weaning. But we quickly found that the social environment was about as influential. So when we had animals that were more likely to be displaced or, or more likely to be aggressive at the feed bunk, how that interacted with their meal patterns had a big influence. So so yeah, I think I think we do underestimate the role of the social environment in developing when and how much animals eat. And we we see so much individual variability, you know, like you saw with with calves eating more or less solid feed in early life. And yes, certainly social differences in social behavior can contribute to that. Can you talk about that research a little bit more? We actually had um, we did some educational uh, uh, dairy days around the state of Iowa a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about um, we got a lot of questions about that idea of when we should start feeding hay to calves. And one of the questions that comes up is, well, are you, you know, are we doing them a disservice or a benefit by teaching them to eat TMR earlier, basically? So what's what have you seen in that space? Yeah. So I, my, my caveat here is that I'm not a nutritionist and there's always levels of complexity here when you think about how giving hay, you know, in terms of the type of hay, the type of grass hay intersects with what kind of starter they're getting, how much milk they're getting and so on. But pretty much universally, we've seen benefits to giving calves hay earlier in life. And we're not necessarily concerned with giving them a high quality hay because they're getting the nutrition they need through milk and on their starter ration, but calves want to eat hay. We've seen calves sort within a mixed diet in favor of the hay, um, suggest, which is just they're motivated to access hay. They, When they get hay, uh, we see less abnormal oral behavior. So um, either cross-sucking or we see a lot of pen-directed sucking and chewing in calves. Um, we've even seen that provision of hay influences learning ability in calves, suggesting that like other aspects of the environmental complexity, giving calves something else to do, something to chew on, something to eat might influence their learning ability. So from a behavioral standpoint, I'm I'm convinced that giving calves hay is valuable. And then in terms of the nutrition and the performance side of it, we need to think about how it's influencing what else is going on. And Certainly, we've seen that giving calves access to hay can actually increase their solid feed intake, either by stimulating more starter intake or by not affecting how much starter they're eating. So adding hay intake on top of the starter. Um, but there's also some work showing that in some cases it can um, displace starter intake where they start eating a little bit less and hay on its own, um, low energy value, it can potentially delay rumen development. So that's certainly something to consider, um, but and something to keep an eye on when producers start giving calves hay. But I think it's really something we should be thinking about more. That's something that I think about sometimes as well. You know, calves are so motivated to eat that solid feed. Um, and, you know, you hear about researchers that try to limit, you know, the, the roughage intake and the calves will try to eat, they'll eat the straw. So they put them on shavings, and they eat the shavings, so they put them on rocks, and they'll eat the rocks. And it's like, they're just so motivated for, for that. Um, so when you're, when, when do you recommend, at least from a social side of things, starting to offer hay? Is like, are you talking about like in the leading up to weaning, after weaning? Like, when does that, when have you kind of looked at starting that giving hay? Yeah, that's a great question. We haven't specifically looked at when to start 
um, providing it. Typically, in the research we've done in my lab, we've just introduced it at the same time as starter. And the calves really just pick at it. But it's like you said, you know, if they're not eating hay, we bed calves on sand and they eat sand. And that's that's not good. That's not <laughs> so good <to> I think <laughs> exactly, you know, so so they're looking for something to interact with in their environment. They're they calves lie down for a lot of the day, but when they're awake, they're awake, they're active, they're seeking stimulation. Um, and so they chew on hay. And of course, they don't eat very much. Um, we actually see over the course of the, the pre-weaning period that the ratio of starter to hay consumption increases. So I mean, you don't want to give calves you you want to help them make good choices about what they're eating, but I also don't want to underestimate maybe how much they're able to adjust what they're eating to meet their needs. So they do increase how much starter they're eating relative to hay. Hay intake's a little bit more constant, but they're eating more starter over time as we start weeding them off of milk to, to meet that increasing demand for energy from solid feed. So I'm not sure, you know, I, I think having access to hay around weaning is valuable because that's when we typically see a lot of abnormal oral behavior. So at that point, having access to hay might provide a good alternative for them, kind of redirect that you know, motivation for oral manipulation. But I also don't necessarily see a downside to giving hay earlier on. So are you are you providing it separately with from the starter, just like throwing a leaf of hay in a feeder? Um, or are you grinding it and putting it in with the starter? Or have you tried both? We've tried both. Um, we've given it as a mixture. We've sort of chopped it to about one inch and mixed it in with a starter pellet. Um, and, and that's where we've, we've seen some sorting. Um, we, In terms of the effects of hay provision on, for example, reducing abnormal oral behavior, we haven't really seen that it makes a difference how it's provided. Um, but we do see that calves will sort within a mixed diet. Um, in some older work, uh, back when I was working at uh, during my PhD, we saw actually that calves that had a mixed diet during the pre-weaning period sorted. So it suggested that they weren't exactly given the ratio of feed ingredients they wanted. They were trying to you know adjust, customize you know within their ration what they wanted to eat. And then we saw that the calves that had the mixed diet during the pre-weaning period, and so they had the opportunity to sort they started to sort. And then after weaning, they were sorting more than calves that were given those feed ingredients separately. So to me, it kind of suggests that, you know, I think it could be more work, first of all, having to mix these feed ingredients than deliver them to a calf. And it didn't seem to be much of an advantage. I think, you know, if you want to give calves hay, just give them cow, give the calves hay and see what they do with it. Um, was, um, but, but I think certainly the particle size you mentioned grinding can make a difference. I think the benefit is probably in the ability to kind of manipulate it and chew it and how, how finely it's ground and whether it's mixed in with other feed um, could influence how much they eat and could come to the point where you're offsetting some of the starter intake. Gotcha. That's really interesting. A little bit more work to be done in that area, I guess, that you can, you can have some other treatments that you can kind of work on too. Um, some of the yeah, things. It's one of these things yeah. that really intersects with the, uh, um, nutrition too. So of course it's, you know, I'm interested in feeding behavior and how, what, how else that relates to other aspects of behavior, like abnormal oral behavior, but of course, you know, how, how it relates to nutrition, other aspects of nutrition, like milk as well is so important. You've talked about that abnormal oral behavior and you mentioned cross-sucking in particular. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, so that's one of the things, you know, we've been experimenting at our university dairy with doing some, some pair, uh, pair housing as the calves kind of get closer to weaning. Um, and you've talked about some of that, those benefits of pair housing, but a common uh, you know, feedback that we hear about it is that cross-sucking behavior. So um, from your experience as a behaviorist and, and interest in animal welfare, what are some ways, what are some tools that producers have to kind of mitigate that, that cross-sucking behavior? Right. 
Yeah, cross-sacking is certainly a concern. I think in terms of how much calves do it, we see a lot more um, in, in my experience of individual oral behaviors as well, sort of pen-directed sucking in, and all of them kind of add up to the same thing that we're not quite meeting the calves' needs in terms of suckling motivation and also perhaps just more generally how complex our environment is. So those abnormal behaviors um, can develop. And in, in calves, you know, sucking is so motivated. And even when we're providing calves higher planes of nutrition, like through an auto feeder, they still might not be able to spend as much time um, sucking on, on the teat as they're motivated to do. We see benefits of, of non-nutritive sucking with calves. Um, we know it's related to uh, the release of hormones involved in satiety, digestion. And actually, yeah, I was interested, there's work in human babies uh, looking at non-nutritive sucking, suggesting that it has benefits in calming the baby, even in providing like analgesic effects following painful procedures if the cat, uh, the baby was able to uh, perform so the suckling. So oh. I don't think we should, you know, so it's so neat, right? And I think, so suckling on its own isn't a problem. The problem is when there isn't an appropriate outlet for it and quickly that behavior can become redirected to something else like another calf, like some fixture in the pen. And then it starts to be performed repetitively over time. The calves will spend a lot of time doing it. And that's when we consider it to be abnormal. So that's a consideration, you know, from terms of the animal's welfare. And of course, a concern in terms of the welfare of the other calf when we're looking at, at cross-sucking. Yeah. So, right. So, so certainly, so looking at feeding method, you know, when we have bucket fed calves, calves that aren't fed a lot of milk, of course, we're not meeting their needs in terms of suckling behavior. So there's low hanging fruit, right? There's feeding via, via teat. There's uh, giving calves more milk. There's giving calves, hey, other opportunities for oral manipulation. And then there's other attempts to try to provide outlets. So things like dummy teats, which aren't always very effective. Calves don't always suck on them. Um, and I think that's when you start to get into some harder questions because a lot of the focus, maybe universally, but at least in my world on calves is, how to make things less bad, how to make calves less hungry, how to uh, help calves experience less pain if we're thinking about disbudding, how to make calves you know, less frustrated in terms of, of suckling motivation. But I don't think I've ever seen a way to completely eliminate those behaviors within the scope of conventional calf rearing. Um, I was talking about some data recently where we um, we had, you know, we provide social housing, which can, which does actually while it does introduce the concern of cross-sucking, it reduces other abnormal oral behaviors like pen-directed sucking. So we can, you know, raise calves socially, we can give them more milk, we can feed them by a teat, but it, it seems like we're still not necessarily quite meeting all of their needs with respect to the complexity of their environment or, um, yeah, behavioral opportunities. Yeah. I, you talked about auto feeders. I remember we had... Um when I was at, at the Ridgetown campus, we had some of the University of Guelph, we had... Um, auto feeders and I can remember watching the calves especially when they start stepping down they they get frustrated right they go up to the auto feeder they're not getting what they think they need to get and they they kind of come out in a huff right and then turn around and start sucking on one of their buddies and <laughs> exactly and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and it sounds like we have some options there though right and it is something I'm I'm hearing a little bit more research coming out in this area um so do you have you have theories where this is gonna where we're gonna end up here is it gonna be that we just kind of offer calves more enrichment or um is it gonna end up kind of like really far out there like you know, I don't know like just from your gut feeling what do you think we're going to end up calves of the future are going to end up looking like right well yeah and you mentioned you mentioned weaning and that's of course a challenge because 
you know, when we're trying to wean calves at, you know, seven to eight weeks of life, there's really no way around the fact that they're going to be motivated to, to suckle. And if they're housed in a group, that's going to get directed somewhere. I don't think you can design a environment that is going to completely eliminate that kind of behavior and cross-sucking in group house calves when weaning, weaning them that early. And of course, you know, you think about what other topics might be coming down the line, you know, 20 years from now, and it's hard to avoid the conversation of cow-calf contact and whether that's going to be something that we start moving towards, you know, because of public perception and maybe also developments in how and we can read your calves. We certainly see that coming in Europe. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I, th I think there's a lot we can do to address the behavioral needs of calves within current you know, ways that calves are reared on conventional farms, a lot we can do to, to improve their welfare. But um, but yeah, there's some challenges that I think are really hard to avoid within the sort of conventional calf rearing model. I guess, can we kind of take a, a step step back or a step up? You've talked about some of the importance of, you know, the the social, the the behavior, calf welfare. Um, what What's the long-term impact that's going to make on the animal? So what is that going to, what's that going to look like as that calf kind of goes through weaning, um, you know, breeding and ultimately joining the lactating herd? Yeah, I love that question because it's exactly one we're trying to answer in my lab right now. <laughs> so, yes. So, so we're in the middle of um, a four-year project that where we've been looking at long-term effects of social housing. And so some of those answers um, you know, we're, we're trying to get some insight, for example, into things like reproductive development, age at puberty, because we see evidence in other species that early social interaction influences that. So potential long-term effects that could be really influential. But um, I mean, from, from my standpoint, I think there's still a lot of gaps in our knowledge. So we see benefits of social housing for obviously calf behavioral development, um, calf growth in early life. And then we have other effects that we might predict would influence the calf's ability to navigate different environments as she develops. So things like differences in cognitive ability, differences in response to novelty. So all of those things could play out down the line where potentially you've got a heifer that adapts to her changing environment more easily. She's starts feeding more quickly when she's moved to a new environment. She integrates more easily in her social environment. And of course, all of that could have effects on stress and immune function and health or milk production. So we're trying to answer some of those questions. I think so far, it suggests that there's likely no downside and there could be these long-term benefits, but there's not a lot of work. There, there's some evidence to suggest uh, things like um, improved competitive success longer term in cows reared socially, a little bit of evidence to suggest possible reproductive benefits or milk production benefits, but but largely gaps in our knowledge there. That's really cool. Um, a big, a big, and I think a lot of times for, well, I've seen in general in research, we've had a more of an more of an emphasis on not so much what are our short-term outcomes. Well, still a lot of that, of course, but but there's been this shift where I think we've been a lot more focused on, okay, what is the, what is the long-term impact? You know, if we come back and we look at these cows, we saw these short-term things. Um, another one, well, you know, at University of Florida, another one that comes to mind is that dry cow heat stress stuff, right? And okay, it turns out that that's a multi-generational thing. And um, I yeah, think we're kind absolutely. of taking that step back as a, as a group of researchers and saying like, you, you know, we have our niches, but how do our, how do our niches kind of impact the outcomes for that cow or the industry as a whole. So it's really exciting. I'm excited to see what you find. Yeah, I, I am too. And I think, you know, certainly the understanding that what we do during this early window of development in calves has, has long-term implications is really important and interesting. I think when I kind of 
started getting into this world <laughs> um, during the beginning of my graduate school, I had, there was a lot of discussion about calf milk feeding and all this information coming out about how milk feeding level could have longer term effects on milk production, reproductive outcomes later in life. And that really drove, I think, the increased adoption of you know higher plants for nutrition in early life. And so I'm kind of hoping that the more we learn about long-term effects of social housing and other aspects of calf management will tell us that it's not just a short-term effect, that there is a long-term benefit, even a long-term economic benefit that'll help sort of increase adoption of some of these practices that um, that I think influence welfare, at least early in life. Yeah. How, uh, I got two questions. Let me pick which one I want to go with first. Do calves raised on auto feeders, do you think, I don't know if there's research on this yet, do calves raised on auto feeders do better as robot cows? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I've had the same thought, conversations about that. I don't think we know, but that's another great example of something, you know, I think some of that research is really hard to do. That's something we're experiencing right now with this trial, because you want to look at something early in life and then you want to track these animals for, you know, multiple years. Really hard to do that sometimes, um, particularly if you're trying to compare between different systems, because you can't go to a commercial right. farm and yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure. I think, um, but that's... It, it does sort of relate to something I'm I'm interested in, though, which is um, and maybe can actually answer, um, which is, you know, the differences in behavior that we can measure in early life and how they might relate to longer term outcomes. So when we look at calf differences in calf behavior, whether it's meal patterns, when we can measure it using an auto feeder or increasingly all the other technologies that are out there to look at behavior in early life, um, including you know, we've got a a location tracking system so we can look at social proximity and calves in the group and look at social networks in early life. And I'm, I'm curious how those differences in behavior in early life, potentially even differences in, you know, how readily they approach the auto feeder or how easily they learn to use the auto feeder could relate to longer term outcomes, including maybe robot use or any other aspect of production. So maybe individual differences in early life could predict, you know, longer term what we see. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, and maybe, you know, that we still have a lot of farms that are using robot, maybe not a lot, but we have some farms that are using robots and parlors. And maybe that's even a predictor down the line that, oh, this is going to be a good cap to put towards your robot farm, or this is going to be a good cap to put, uh, in the parlor there. So yeah, interesting. Uh, we've talked a lot this morning about social housing, um, and you know, the group housing with, for calves. I've seen, I think a little bit, my, my career hasn't been that long, but I think I've been seeing a shift towards more acceptance of social housing. Even when I think back to, you know, when I was an undergrad, we were a lot more hesitant to kind of put calves in, um, you know, the, the benefits of individual housing are, you know, you get to give that calf individual care. Um, there's less risk for disease transfer. Um, you're, so there's you get to look at each calf and and if you have a calf that's sick you're going to catch that calf and and also isolate that calf right away. Um, so there are some there there are a lot of traditional benefits that we talk about for individual housing. Um, but I think I've seen uh, a greater acceptance of social housing, although I still run into uh, resistance every once in a while. So so can you talk about a little bit like. Um, some of the some of the traditional downsides that we see for social housing, like that disease, um, you know, disease transfer risk and um, some things that we can do to kind of mitigate some of those some of those issues that we still see sometimes. Yeah, and certainly there is evidence to suggest that larger groups of calves can be more prone to you know, increased disease of res rates of respiratory disease, for example. Um, I think it's one of these things that doesn't need to increase disease risk for calves, but you need to be doing things well. To implement it. 
So certainly things like colostrum management, hygiene, ventilation, all of these things that we know are risk factors for disease in calves are amplified when we then put calves in the same group housing environment. So Certainly, we need to think about that. And we were we did a um, a survey recently. I haven't really dabbled a lot in social sciences, but we did a, a survey with producers, asking their perceptions of how social housing related to. Um, we asked them about calf comfort, which we kind of treated as a proxy for you know what do you think about the calves, you know how the calf is feeling, kind of, and and calf health because of course we you know, expected and we see a lot of concern about calf health when we're talking about about social housing, and. Interestingly, we had about 100 producers respond and over half of them were actually housing their calves socially already. So it does suggest that probably it's not a representative sample, but you know, we are seeing certainly a lot more social housing. And there, there was um, certainly more concern about um, social housing being bad for calf health than for comfort. But overall, there was a majority of producers that thought it was actually good for calf health. So it does suggest, I think, that you know, you've got different perceptions and different concerns. And of the producers that were already housing their calves socially, they're more likely to think that it was good for calf health. So it's sort of, I think it suggests, you know, maybe, maybe you do something because you're not worried about it affecting calf health, or maybe you already do, are doing it and you don't see that your calves are, you know, sicker than they were before. So certainly I think, you know, we see, we see differences in concerns between producers and differences in experience, but we also see lots of examples of it being done well without increasing disease in calves. And then of course, you've got all the other benefits, you know, calves that are eating more starter and gaining weight more consistently through weaning and, and so on. Very cool. Yeah. It's going to be exciting to see how this industry continues to kind of uh, shift um, and, and the ways that we'll keep be going in the next uh, 10, 20 years here. So I think it's been fun to see things change. And I think calf rearing is interesting because there are so many different ways to do it. There's so many, very, you know, so much variability between farms, which is wild. You know, I can't, I can't think of anything else. that's quite so variable. We've got different approaches to housing them, to feeding them, so many ways to improve within that space that could potentially have these long-term effects on behavioral development and welfare. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it right. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it wrong too. Um, <laughs> and we've seen some of those as well, but there are a lot of producers doing doing things successfully, but those producers don't all look the same as each other. There's they Everybody kind of finds a way to, to make it work for them. So I think that's very true. We've spent a little bit of time in my lab group this semester, or last semester actually, we, we've, a couple of your papers came out looking at um, at uh, human interaction and how human interaction impacts, uh, you know, calf behavior. And so um, got some students that were interested in that topic. So we read a couple of your papers in our in our lab group this past semester. Can you talk about that research a little bit and what you what you were studying and what you found? Right. So, yeah, I actually had a, um, a master's student who was interested in human animal interaction and it wasn't something I really thought to look at. But we had this trial going on where we had calves reared in our different housing systems. And so we did a series of human approach tests. So uh, there was certainly previous literature suggesting differences in, in human animal interaction or human directed behavior in calves reared in different social housing systems. So we adapted some tests. We looked at human approach tests, both in the home pen. So essentially just somebody in a standardized way walking up to the pen to see how the calf responded. And then also human approach tests in a novel arena where a calf was removed from their familiar home environment individually 
put in the arena, and then we looked at how they approached or interacted with a, a test human standing in the arena. And we were interested in this partly because we we wondered how interest in interacting with humans might be influenced by social experiences in the pen. So whether calves that are housed without social contact with other calves might be more motivated to interact with a human. And then we also wanted to look at whether there were longer term effects. So after the calves were weaned, they're all moved to the same group pen. And we repeated the human approach test in the group pen of calves to see if there were any at least short term carryover effects of, of previous social housing. Um, and, and we saw throughout, throughout the entire period um, that, that calves that were housed individually did appear to be more motivated to interact with the human. And that persisted into the post-weaning period in the group pen where calves were sort of oriented towards the human. So they were spending, seeming to be a little bit more interested in, in their presence. So yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I think it could potentially, have, potentially influence um, or have implications for aspects of management. Um, and I think it, it's probably a lot to do with um, potentially individually calve, has calves being more motivated to seek um, something else to interact with in their environment because it's a little bit more restrictive and there isn't that pen mate present. Um, and I do think it's something that could interact a lot with milk feeding method. So when we have calves that were getting manually fed by humans, as it was the case in this study, that's sort of a, a positive association and somebody is coming and bringing you milk. I think that could be a little different when we're looking at some of the automated milk feeding methods. And this was all in Holsteins, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. I bet you'd see some breed differences. I just walked through a Jersey barn not too long ago, Jersey calf barn, and walked out all slobbered all over. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And we did look at um, the the sort of human-directed sucking <laughs> was something <Yes. laughs> specifically in our list of behaviors to to observe because uh, specifically in the, in the home pen approach test, the human would walk right up and the calf would kind of um, certainly lick on them. I know Jersey calves probably do that a little bit more, but yeah, we we got a lot of that. Um, we actually did. So we also repeated a second, um, we did a second study looking specifically at weaning, where we were we were interested in uh, sort of brushing related behavior, but we focused on human scratching on the calf and tried to kind of mimic um, scratching under the neck the way we'd see animals sort of social grooming each other. And we were interested in whether human presence would kind of, and sort of human scratching um, during weaning would influence at all the duration of that pen-directed sucking that seems to crop up so much when calves are being weaned. So we had um, some repeated days where on certain days, calves would have somebody there just to scratching their neck for a few minutes. Um, and that's, so we said there that individually has calves had a lot more pen-directed sucking during weaning, but that if a person was there for a few minutes after feeding, it reduced the level of that behavior to not so different from the pair house calves. Um, of course, the individually housed calves did suck on the person, so it was a little bit of a sort of redirected, but even factoring that behavior in, it was still less of that oral behavior overall when the person was there, suggesting that maybe it has some sort of, you know, it's a little bit interesting for the calf as some kind of stimulation that might uh, um, sort of redirect their attention from those oral behaviors. And then also the scratching itself, um, brush use and scratching can kind of reduce arousal and seems to reduce oral behaviors as well. Yeah, we were talking about uh, opportunities for, you know, getting undergrads out there to, to pet calves more often. Um, <laughs> it's an easy <laughs> sell. <laughs> so do we pay them? Or, or I, I know that, in, you know, you see we have... Um, uh, some universities will do like, a, oh, come pet a cow during finals week to reduce your stress. And uh, so maybe it's come pet calves and the calves benefit and the students benefit from from that. Yeah, it reduces yeah. everybody's stress levels. <laughs> yes, just go pet well, calves. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, we actually have uh, coming up this weekend, we have our open house at our research farms. We have family day at the dairy farm and we've got a, you know, the pet a calf station where we've got people who come by and, and see it, see a dairy calf. So it's, nice. it's great. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Multiple benefits. Everybody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> Endorphins on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I assume, well, um, when I don't know when this episode's actually going to be posted, uh, but as we, you and I sit here this morning, uh, we are a little less than a week from ADSA Abstracts being due. I assume you're going this summer since it's in your backyard. Um, yes, uh, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, uh, or not your current backyard, but but close to to where you originated. Um, yeah. Anything exciting that you have coming down the pipeline that you want to maybe not spoil for us, but but kind of give us a sneak preview of? Sure. Yeah. So um, we do have some of the uh, preliminary results from the long-term effects of social housing on heifer development. We have some of that work coming out um, in terms of uh, long-term growth and age at confirmed cycling, so age at puberty, um, and also longer-term effects on social interactions and social networks of group-housed heifers that have been on a pasture for two months. And you know, it's all preliminary data. So I'll just say we are seeing some longer term effects of social housing on calves that sort of suggest what we might expect as far as increased longer term ability to interact and develop social behavior and um, potentially long term benefits for growth. So we've got a few students who are coming and presenting abstracts on, on that and more of that will be coming along soon. Very cool. So before we move into our, our final three questions, I'll ask you kind of uh to wrap up, you know, we've talked about a lot about some of the different things that you've looked at that have an impact on calves, um, from forages to brushes to petting to, you know, all of these, all of these things you've kind of looked at. If there was a take home today um, for our listeners that they could take back to either their farms or their producers and be like, this is a change that could have a positive benefit. What's the one thing that you would probably pick from the research that you've done? Um, look for simple opportunities to give calves more to do. So whether it's providing some forage, whether it's um, introducing even pair housing, if you're thinking about moving away from individual housing, um, stationary brushes, very cheap, calves use them. We've seen them reduce pen-directed oral behavior. So I think, think about, you've got this developing social baby mammal and yeah. look at their environment and give them something else to interact with and, and do in that space. Um, we can easy ways to make the environment more complex and we see really broad effects um, on behavioral development. Um, you know, we see in other species evidence of effects on cognition just with any aspects of the complexity in the environment and we're starting to see that work in calves too. And that that's the sort of thing where we won't necessarily you know, we don't we don't go out on farm and look at calf learning ability, but those are things that could play out down the line. We've got an animal that's adapting to their environment more easily. It's able to learn about their environment more easily. So, so yeah, give the calves more to do. All right, I like that. Simple, actionable. I approve. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. R-Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. 
AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health. From young calves to lactating dairy cows, AB Vista is here to combine industry-leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI. We'll go ahead and move into our final three questions that we ask all of our guests. Our first one is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? So this is pretty broad, but can I just say um, the ADSA, actually maybe the ADSA annual meeting as, mm. as an event, that's a resource. I uh, I got brought along as a, I don't know, lucky, almost starting a master's student um, in 2009. Um, it was in Montreal, unless I'm mixing up years there. That's the first year that I went too. Oh, yep. really? Yeah. Yep, as an uh, almost master's student. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it was, it was amazing, you know, it's so many people, all the names of the papers that I, I've been reading and, and I've been back every year since, except for COVID. Yep. Yep. Same. Yeah. Um, and this year pitch it's in Ottawa. So um, it's going to be a fun one. I think we've got all of my students want to go. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, being it's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun one. Um, not all the cities are always that enjoyable, uh, I will say, but, <laughs> but this year will be a good one. Beautiful. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I echo what you said. I always like, that's, I think the time of year where I get to see all of my, you know, all of my dairy friends all in the same spot. And it's really, exactly. Yeah. I enjoy it. And the, and of course, listening to the talks and, and seeing the posters and, and that, but also the networking that happens. So I yeah, agree. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So what is your favorite non-dairy related uh, book or resource that you would recommend? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with another broad one. Um, but the one of the, my other uh, conferences that I try to go to as often as I can is the International Society for Applied Ethology. So ISAE. Um, and this is animal behavior, a lot of discussion with animal welfare, and it's across species. So there's a good, you know, good representation of dairy and other livestock, but you've got companion animals and laboratory animals and zoo animals. And it's a really good place to get ideas and interact with people because, you know, a lot of what we do, I focus on dairy calves, of course, but, you know, we can draw a lot of ideas from what we're seeing in terms of um, behavioral development, ways to look at behavior, ways to influence the development of behavior, implications for welfare from other species. So, so yeah, that's another one I love. Very cool. All right. So our final question is, uh, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I have to just say looking around for new information and, and ways to improve. And there's always small changes that can be made. Um, and I think a lot of it is you know, we, we can we can try to do our research and we can try to think about how to translate that research. There's a lot of good extension efforts. Um, but I think, yeah, when you're looking and, and trying to ask questions about what the animals need and how to meet those needs, um, trying to improve welfare often plays out to other benefits we see for production as well. So it's usually a win-win. So trying to look for opportunities, even really small, seemingly simple ways to improve animal welfare. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. Uh, really, really cool to hear about some of the stuff that you're doing and looking forward to seeing um, some of the research that you have coming out. If people want to get connected with you or want to kind of keep tabs on some of the stuff that you're doing in your lab, is there a place that they can find you? Um, the Animal Science University of Florida website. We have a lab Instagram account as well, which I update somewhat sporadically, but I try. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's probably the best way. All right. And what's the handle on that? ABW Lab. 
All right. Very cool. Well, we appreciate again you uh, you taking the, the opportunity to speak with us, and uh, we'll um, hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation as well. So thanks, Emily. Yeah, thanks so much. This was fun.